Well, good afternoon. It's, uh, it is great to see you all. Um, uh, it's Easter soon, and today we're starting a new series, as Joy said, entitled The King Who Died Three Weeks. Um, what, what I'd like to do is to invite you to explore uh, with me over the next three weeks um, this, the, the, the Easter story, the crucifixion, uh, particularly of the Lord Jesus. I want to invite you to do that, for, uh, p- particularly because I think this is really worthwhile as an activity. Um, if, if Jesus is God in human flesh, then the fact that he died is mind-blowing, isn't it? Um, if, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then his death cannot have been an accident or some kind of tragic mistake. Um, The identity of Jesus takes his death out of the realm of him being some kind of martyr. You'll know in history there's been hundreds, if not thousands, of heroic martyrs in history. But the identity of Jesus takes his death out of the category of just being a martyr Um, if he is death if if he is God his death kind of towers over the whole of human history we we, we probably have in our own country um, a whole generation uh, growing up who who know nothing of of the Bible Um, not, nothing even of the basic facts of, of the gospel stories. And yet the death of Jesus is, is arguably the most significant event that has ever happened in, on our planet. So I, I hope that we'll... Oh dear... Oh, everything's okay now. Mummy's here. The, de- the death of Jesus, uh, I want to suggest to you as well as we begin, is, is also uh, the unique core of, of Christianity and its teachings. Um, I mean, who, who starts a religion by dying? Um, who, who wins by losing? And the, the question really is, how, how on earth could Christianity even get off the ground, let alone gain traction in a brutal first century Roman Empire when the one who started it was crucified as a criminal outside the city wall? And how on earth has a symbol of Roman execution become the symbol of a religion? I, I think sometimes we, we forget because the, the symbol of a cross has become like uh, a sanitised thing. Imagine if people were wearing around their neck uh, an electric chair or uh, a hangman's noose or maybe earrings. They could be popular. Hangman noose ear- earrings. Um, it would be gruesome and, and grotesque. And yet the symbol of the cross, the death of Jesus has become the symbol worldwide of Christianity. 
when you boil everything down to its most basic level, the, the death of Jesus on the cross is the foundation, the core and the centre of everything. There was a man in the first century called Paul, the first great missionary, I suppose, of Christianity. He was instrumental in spreading the gospel around Europe. He wrote quite a lot of the New Testament, as many of you will know. A man called Paul wrote to a church in Corinth in Greece. And he said to them, people want this, people might want that. But we preach Christ crucified. That, that, was, that was the kind of, I mean, imagine that as the, your kind of billing, you know. You, you want to come and give us a talk? Yeah, that, that's my kind of core message, Christ crucified. I don't know whether you get invited back. And yet, his message kind of spread like wildfire. He goes on in the same letter to remind them, and, and get, get these words, on, honesty. When I came to you, he says, because he, he went to Corinth, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. I, I, I know what that feels like as a preacher. Every week it's terrifying for me standing up here. Just kidding. Um, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The driving power and force behind the lives of the first Christians was the death of a king. The king who died. Another more modern preacher uh, was uh, speaking to a group of uh, young people, students. I, I, I think in a football stadium, actually. Uh, many thousands of students. And, uh, and this, this modern preacher began his talk with these words. You don't, this is to students, young people on the, on the, on the threshold of life. And he said to them, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in this world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people who make a durable difference in the world are not the people who've mastered many things, but they are the people who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count... If you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. That man Paul again could say to a different group of Christians, may I never boast except in the cross 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, the cross of Jesus is my glory. It's an odd way to use boast. We, we don't like boast. What he's saying is, I'm proud of it. I, it. It's my life. It is my motivation. It is the thing that has set me on fire. The cross of Jesus is the fire that burns in my belly. In the end, to me, says Paul, nothing else really matters. How does someone get to that? To glory in something so gruesome and horrible and shocking. I I think the truth is that Paul was gripped by the fact that his whole life depended on what Jesus had done for him. Apart from the cross, he was guilty. Sure, he could fill his life with stuff, but his relationship with God ultimately was dead. But when he saw that Christ had come to die for him, it changed everything. And the cross for Paul became the defining characteristic the motivating influence in his whole life. I saw a great strapline for a church the other day. Uh, Maybe you might like to adopt this for our church. Um, I I thought this was good. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. I thought that was a great strapline for a church. I don't know who dreamt that up. Maybe we should adopt that one on our notice board outside. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect anything's possible. A lot of people don't feel welcome because they think church is full of people who think they're better than everybody else. I think this strap line kind of sums up something very true about the church. I think Paul maybe would have liked that. The reason these three things are true is because the king died. Here's the message of the whole Bible. The core truth of Christianity is not that complicated. The king who died, died for you. And he died for me. So, uh, come with me and let's, we're, we're going to try and explore um, this theme, the king who died. We've, we've got three weeks. Today, I want to highlight one simple idea. We'll try and do one simple thing each week. Number one, um, as it says at the bottom, that slide wasn't meant to have all that on. We'll come back to that in a minute. The king who died can be trusted. I want to think with you uh, today about the whole issue of trust. We've got an election coming up, haven't we? Who do you trust? Everybody has like a cynical <laughs> Who would want to be a politician? Who can you trust? Let me uh, take a few minutes just to talk with you about the issue of trust. And then we're going to go to John chapter 10 and think about what Jesus says about trust and how it relates to Easter and the king who died. I came across a recent survey done by one of the national broadsheet newspapers I, I won't mention it because sometimes when you mention the paper everybody goes, oh, yeah. so it was, but it was a national broadsheet it wasn't like a tin pot paper 
they did a survey and they asked nine questions that were all related to cultural attitudes towards trust. Uh, the first question um, asked people to say what they thought trust was. And the, and the slide that came up too early is a, is a graphical like summary of the answers. So the idea with a picture like this is the words that are the biggest are the ones that people said the most and the words that are the smallest are the ones that people said the least. And obviously the relative sizes, you, you get the idea. What did people think that trust really was and you can see some of the words up there honesty I think honesty and truthfulness were the, the big two reliability faithfulness credibility some, some of the smaller ones you might not be able to read some of the smaller ones say competence or ability and I, I thought it was really interesting if, I mean if you want a plumber you know, generally, you want someone who's got competence, don't you? So you, you trust them to kind of fix your bathroom. But it was very interesting. When people asked, what do you think trust is? They didn't go to categories of competence or ability, but to moral categories. What, what I, 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 I'm not so interested in people's ability. What I want to know is that they are truthful, honest, genuine, sincere. And that's a, that's a moral category. Here, here's another fascinating question. The, the question was asked, can people be... Well, they asked it this way. Do you agree or disagree that most people can be trusted? Maybe we should do a little poll. Our survey said. Do you agree or disagree that most people can be trusted? What, what do you think? The, the, this, this is a survey of just a cross-section in our modern culture in Britain. Agree? You think most people said yes? Okay, who thinks most people said yes? You think surveys can be trusted? Who, who, who thinks no? There's a lot of people sitting on the fence there. Well, 50, 54% agreed. 54% agreed that you can trust people. That means that nearly half the people you meet don't trust people. <laughs> nearly one in two people that you meet don't believe a word you say. Is that, I'm not that great with stats, but is that what that means? One in two people that you meet don't believe a word you say. Think about that. 54%. What is even more revealing is when you break down, down this by age. So I, I, I need to take a minute just to explain this. So what, of all the people they surveyed, they broke down the percentages by age group. 71% of 64-year-old and over people said they agreed. When you go down to 55 to 64, 67%. Then you get into the 20s and 30s and they're 40%. The youngest category is 18 to 24, only 38%. What, that's, what that is saying is, the older you are, the more trusting you are, the younger you are, you don't trust anyone. So I'm looking out now at all of you and thinking, he's going to believe a word I'm saying. I thought I was really interesting. So all the older people here, they believe you younger ones. You younger ones, you think they're all talking rubbish. <laughs> I don't believe a word they say. Isn't that interesting? 
very cynical, in a way, culture. Another question, I don't, I don't want to draw on about this all day, but when you're on the... Oh, the, the other thing I wanted to say... Oh, sorry, sorry I lost my place there. That, then they asked the question, who do you trust? And, and in this question, they gave people a list of different kinds of people, and you could tick any of them. Okay? So, of all the people surveyed, 89% said, I trust my friends. I don't know who the other 11% were. 89%, that's good, isn't it? 80% said they trusted their family. So that means people trust their friends more than their family. Only 73% said they trusted their partner. Now, I've not seen all the details survey. I assume that's a lower number because not everyone in the survey had a partner. But still, do, do people really trust their friends more than they trust their family and their partners? I thought that was quite interesting. And then, here's a few more. 55% said they trust professionals. That means teachers, doctors. 30% said they trusted their colleagues. What a miserable workplace. Only 30% trust their colleagues. They're <laughs> rubbish for our work. 30%? And only 90% said they, tr- they, they don't. They, they trust politicians. I think we probably all agree with that. Uh, there's another circle I didn't put on there. 2% of people said, don't trust any of them. <laughs> I don't trust my partner, I don't trust my friends, I don't trust anyone. 2%? So, wow. Here's another one. When you're on the internet, who do you trust? On the internet. You can't see, but you're online. Basically, people trust Martin Lewis and medical advice websites. Anything else? Waste of time. So basically, we only trust the people who are saving us money and trying to make us feel a bit healthier about ourselves. I think what's interesting with Martin Lewis is that he is a pretty wealthy guy and has made a lot of money from his websites, but it seems like we don't mind him being rich because he's helping us to save cash. Anyone who's getting rich on the backs of other people, we don't trust. But Martin Lewis, he's a trustworthy guy. I think he sold his uh, website for 50 million. So he's not short of a bubble of tea, but we trust him because he helps us save money, doesn't he? Very interesting. It seems, doesn't it, that our culture generally is pretty cynical. Maybe the younger members of our society are more cynical than the older ones, I don't know. Who do you trust? Who can you trust? Whether you're a Christian or not, it seems to me like we live in a time when people will believe anything and yet at the same time believe in nothing. We know so much and yet we know so little. Sometimes I think our culture is saying to us, don't trust anyone. I don't know why I say that in a northern accent. Sometimes I think our culture is saying that, don't trust anyone. I I always think that's quite an amusing thing because if I hear someone say that, I want to ask them, if I listen to your advice and not trust anyone, then I'm kind of trusting you. 
So there's something, about, I, I don't know what the point of that comment is, but there's something ironic about listening to that advice, because you'd have to be trusting the person who said it, wouldn't you? Or maybe our culture is saying something like this. Trust yourself. You know, I saw a, a me, an internet meme the other day that said, trust yourself, you know more than you think you do. I, I thought that was quite an interesting comment. You know more than you think you do. I, I don't know about you. Somehow, I, I feel personally the need often to be validated by, by others. I, I don't like the idea of, you know, don't care what anybody else thinks, I'm just, you know, just going to trust me. Very often in our relationships, we're, we're looking to things and people outside of ourselves in order to derive meaning. How do I know I haven't got things wrong? How do I know I'm not mixed up? On what basis can I trust myself? I'm not the supreme authority. I, I, I sense that I need something outside of me, whatever that might be, to give my opinion some meaning. I, I think the truth is that we all want to trust someone or something. The hard part is deciding what. Um, I, I, I was trying to think of a few things in relation to trust as well. Here, here's three things that I'll tie into John chapter 10 in a minute. Socially, we don't want to ever be seen as gullible, do we? Um, the most important thing often to us is that we want to look capable, competent, cool, to fit in. Um, we don't want to have the embarrassment of being gullible. We don't want other people to think that we've been taken for an idiot. Um, we had someone who worked in our office a few years ago. Um, he came into the office one day. This person was a particularly sensitive person, a big heart for other people, very caring about people who were vulnerable. Came into the office one day, opened up an office and said, I've had this amazing email from someone in Nigeria. Um, it's, there terrible things happening there. I've had this email and they're asking for like donations and if I can give them my bank details and they'll, they'll give some money and, and I'll get like 10%. I mean, it's not about the money, but these people sound like they're suffering terribly. And everyone in the office is beginning to snigger because they all know this is a scam. Where have you been? Everyone knows that people are getting emails. I'm, I'm not singing out Nigeria. It could be anything, but this is a scam. And the embarrassment for the poor guy whose heart's going out to this sob story he's read on the internet or email he's got and everyone's kind of in the office sniggering because he's fallen for it hook, line and sinker. He's on the verge of sending money to them and coming into work to tell everyone how awful this is. You know, some of, some of you know that I used to work down the pits and one of the things I remember as a youngster is the train journeys down, down the shaft and then onto a train for a three or four kilometre train ride to the coalface. Those journeys were all about people finding the weak spots in someone else. Who do we know this morning who has been gullible? Those train journeys were painful. 
if the banter that went on, if someone knew something about you that was slightly where you'd been gullible, you would get ripped to shreds for 20 minutes, people shouting down the train to each other. Some of the stories absolutely hilarious. We don't socially want to be seen as gullible, do we? Emotionally, I, I think there's a sense in which if we are going to trust in something or someone, is it not the case that we want it to be worth it? Who wants to back a losing horse? Who wants to trust in something or someone that lets them down? People in business talk about risk and reward. The higher the risk you take, the bigger reward. Does that apply in the realm of trust? I don't know. In the end, everything we trust in has an element of risk in it. But we, we don't want to feel that we're going to be let down, do we, or caught out. And I think that applies relationally too. Is it not the case that every one of us feels that we don't want to get here? One of the hardest things in life to recover is when trust is broken, isn't it? It takes time to build it, but it can be destroyed in a second, can't it? We don't want to get hurt. I want to suggest to you uh, this afternoon that Christianity is good news, not bad news. That, that's what the word gospel means, good news. The Christian gospel has resources within it that speak directly into these three issues. And I want to spend the rest of our time today just looking briefly at, at an amazing chapter in the Bible. Um, this is not particularly an Easter chapter, so I don't want you to like complain, trade descriptions and all that. The reason I've gone to this chapter is because this is one of the places in the Gospels where Jesus talks about his own death. And, he, and, he, and th So that's very crucial for us. Jesus' own self-reflections, in a way, on, on the death he knew he was going to die the death he came to die in a sense Jesus here is speaking about himself and comparing himself basically to the politicians and religious leaders of his day and he speaks in a kind of picture language that I think everyone in Jesus' culture would have understood a very agricultural picture uh, let me just be clear at the beginning here. I, I, if, if, you're, if you're anything like me, when, when you hear of shepherds and sheep, you, you, you probably want to switch off. It, it all sounds a little bit gearly. Um, fluffy sheep and shepherds. I, I, I want to just scotch that at the start. This is something that maybe we need to retrain our Western computerised ears and, and as I've said this is South Yorkshire the, the land of grit and mines and steelworks or, well it was one we don't talk about fluffy sheep here but actually in the first century the shepherds were the miners the shepherds were they weren't girls they were tough guys they worked hard and they could fight to protect their sheep so this is not a sentimental picture that we're dipping into this afternoon. It is a very manly one, as we'll see. 
Um, the, the picture itself is, is simple, but Jesus messes with these ideas. He, he doesn't really feel constrained to be sort of... I don't think Jesus had any kind of OCD about his illustrations wanting to be perfect. And so Jesus in this, he says, I'm the shepherd, and then he says, I'm the gate, and it's like, which one is he? Is he a shepherd? Is he a gate? I, I don't think Jesus really minds. What the, the thing to keep in mind is the picture. And we'll dip into three different ideas in a minute. What, what you've got here is, is a shepherd and a sheep pen. In your mind's eye, picture a sheep pen with a high wall, stone wall, that goes all the way around, and there's one door. Okay? There's no back door. They don't, they don't have like two means of egress in those days. No health and safety guys saying you've got to have a back door as well. One door and a wall all the way around. There's a shepherd, there's a sheep pen, and there's a gate. Um, I think if we keep that picture in mind, we'll understand what Jesus is saying with the three comparisons he makes. So I've got three quick things to say. First of all, the king who died can be trusted because he has the right credentials. You're not being gullible when you trust in him. In the first picture, if you've got a Bible open there, let, let me just read to you, I'm thinking here the first sort of three or four or five verses. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. In the first picture, then, the focus is on the gatekeeper. So I want you to imagine on the, on the gate of the sheep pen some kind of bouncer, okay? Ian Marriott used to be a bouncer once. So imagine Ian Marriott at the door of the sheep pen, okay? There's no other way in but through Ian Marriott. And I wouldn't argue with him. So Im imagine too, within the sheep pen there are multiple groups of sheep, okay? So may maybe in this town there's maybe, I don't know, ten different groups of sheep. But they're all in the same town pen and Ian Marriott's the bounce on the door. The shepherd comes along with his ID badge and he says to Ian Marriott, I've got my pass and Ian Marriott says, okay, you can come in because I know that you've got the right credentials. If you don't have your pass, there's no way you're going to get into the sheep pen and Ian's not going to let you in. So what do you do? You climb over the wall. You go around the back where you can't see. And you climb over the wall. Any person who's climbing over the wall does not have the best interest of the sheep at heart, do they? They're either trying to nick the sheep or hurt the sheep. Sheep rustlers. The gatekeeper's job is to make sure that the sheep are safe inside 
and that no sheep rustlers get in to the sheep pen. The point is that the shepherd is known to the gatekeeper. What is Jesus trying to say? There's some criticism here going on of people who should be shepherds but don't have the right credentials like he does. One writer says this, this chapter is not only a tender pastoral teaching but it is a stinging indictment of those who profess to be shepherds but are actually thieves and robbers, strangers and hirelings. I've said this to you before. Do you know what the most interesting thing about John chapter 10 is? It is the fact that it comes after John chapter 9. It's helpful that numbers work that way. Do you know what happens in chapter 9? There was a man who had been born blind. Born blind. And Jesus after having a little debate with his disciples, healed this man so that he could see for the first time in his life. Everybody knew him. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew who he was because he used to sit at the gate and introduce them begging every day. The religious leaders sent for this man and said to him, who did this? And he said, Jesus did we know Jesus, he's a carpenter's son from Nazareth, he, he couldn't have done this. And the man, very famously, very profoundly, he sounds a little bit belligerent when you read chapter 9. He says, there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but one thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see, and he's the man who did it. In chapter 9, just look at verse 28, if you're on the same page, it says there in the Bible, they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple, we're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of the man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth, how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heals a man born blind and the Pharisees, the religious leaders say to him, get out, you're you're not welcome in here. Do you know what the most interesting thing about chapter chapter 9 is? It comes after chapter 8. And do you know what happens in chapter 8? These same leaders bring a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. Do they care about her? They bring this woman and they basically throw her on the floor in front of Jesus and say, what are you going to do about that? Caught in the act. There's some hint, I think, in the chapter that she was framed. But they throw her in the dust. What are you going to do about that, Jesus? It is 
one of those no-win questions. If he lets her off, then he doesn't care about morality. If he agrees that she should be stoned to death, he doesn't care about mercy. Jesus actually bends down and starts writing in the dust with his finger. It must have driven them nuts. Stand up and talk to her. He's writing in the dust. Eventually he straightens up and he says to them very famously, let him who has committed no sin throw the first stone. Brilliant. All these guys are there with rocks behind their backs. And one by one you hear them drop to the floor. He's got me there, hasn't he? And eventually there's no one there but Jesus and this poor woman. And he lifts her to her feet and he says to her, go and sin no more. These religious leaders did not have any care for this poor woman at all. She was a pawn in a game, a victim to exploit. How will Jesus get out of that question and not look like an idiot? Jesus says to her, no one has condemned you, and neither do I. Go and sin no more. What Jesus is saying in John chapter 10 is that these leaders, these politicians, these religious people, the establishment, they are really like the thieves and the robbers who climb over the fence. They have no credentials. They don't care about the sheep. All they care about is their own position. Feathering their own nest. And look at the contrast Jesus makes. I know my sheep. And they know me. Nowadays, we tend to find that shepherds drive their sheep uh, from behind. And the herd goes in front. In these days, the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep was much more intimate. you remember the sheep pen with the different groups of sheep? The shepherd shows his pastor in Maria. He comes in. He gives a little call or a whistle. What does John say? The man who enters the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The sheep and the shepherd have an intimate relationship. One writer says, Jesus knows us in the most profound way. He knows our past with its failures and its hurts. He knows our present, our unrealized longings. He knows us in the most intimate way. He knows our idiosyncrasies. He calls us by our characteristics. I sometimes wonder if he calls, some, calls us some of the things we would not want to be called. It is quite possible he affectionately calls us grumpy or fearful or faithless, just as we might talk to our sheep if we were shepherds. What I find really interesting about this chapter is that Jesus is the one saying, be careful who you trust. Do not be gullible. 
Don't trust people who will exploit you or abuse you. I think that says a great deal about Jesus as a king, as a shepherd. Do you fear being gullible? I want to say to you from this passage, Jesus agrees with you. He doesn't want you to believe every or any Tom, Dick or Harry who says follow me. Some of them are thieves and robbers who climb over the wall and don't come in via Marriott with their ID credentials. Secondly, hey, we need to rattle on. Jesus has the right credentials. Secondly, Jesus is the only safe bet. What, what I mean by that is that it is worth it when we trust in him. In verses 7 to 10, in this little section, Jesus changes the imagery. He says there, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. So the same image, but a different metaphor now. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have a life and have it to the full. In the first image, Jesus is saying, I've got the right credentials. I, I love the sheep. Now he's changing the metaphor slightly and saying, the sheep can only be safe because of my protection. I'm the gate. I came across a brilliant illustration of this. In the last century, there was a, um, an Old Testament scholar, uh, an academic, called Sir George Adam Smith. And uh, he, he was someone who liked to travel. This, this is in the last century. Well, not, no, it isn't. It's in the 1800s. We're in the 2000s, aren't we? In the late 1800s, I think, he was travelling. And uh, one of his friends, uh, George, uh, George Campbell Morgan, uh, wrote this about his friend Sir George. He was one day travelling with a guard and came across a shepherd and his sheep. And he fell into a conversation with him. The man showed him the fold into which the sheep were led at night. It consisted of four walls with a way in. Sir George said to him, Is that where they go at night? Yes, said the shepherd. And when they're in here, they are perfectly safe. But there's no door, said Sir George. I am the door, said the shepherd. He wasn't a Christian man, he wasn't, but he was. Um, he, he was not speaking in the language of the New Testament. This guy is speaking from the Arab shepherd's standpoint. Sir George looked at him and said, What do you mean by saying you are the door? The shepherd said, when the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lie down in the open space and no sheep ever goes out but across my body. And no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. It's an amazing illustration, isn't it? That, that, that's like a real shepherd that this guy, Sir George, whatever his name was, 
met. That's what he was doing. There's no door with hinges. The shepherd just laid down in the doorway. Listen, Jesus is saying here, to get in and out of the pen and to be safe, we have to come through him and through him alone. Jesus here is saying much more, actually, that he says, I am the gate for the sheep. But he's, he's saying much more than that. What he's actually saying is that he is the only true gate for the sheep. There are other people you could follow, but Jesus is saying they are either thieves or cowards. Don Carson, some of you will know, American uh, guy, professor, I don't know, says this on this passage, this is a proverbial way of Jesus insisting that there is only one means of receiving eternal life. There is only one source of knowledge of God, only one fount of spiritual nourishment. There is only one basis for spiritual security, Jesus alone. The world still seeks its humanistic, political saviours. Maybe it's Hitler's, Stalin's, Mao's or Pol Pot's and only too late does it learn that they are blatantly confiscating personal property they come only to steal ruthlessly trampling human life underfoot they come only to kill and contemptuously savage all that is valuable they come only to destroy Jesus says another writer suggests that Jesus is right it is not the Christian doctrine of heaven that is the myth but the humanist dream of utopia. I, I don't want to be political necessarily, but we've seen this very thing happen in Rotherham here, haven't we? Our leaders told us the future's bright. And all the while, under our very noses, people's lives were being destroyed. These people are meant to be shepherds. That is, that is the radical nature of what Jesus is saying here. These people are meant to be shepherds. They are thieves and robbers. He is contrasting himself with them. In another gospel, Matthew tells us something of Jesus' heart for the masses. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 it says, When Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep who have no shepherd. That, that, that is a thought that would resonate with someone in the first century. When Jesus looked out into his culture, the thing that grieved his heart the most was that these people had no shepherd. Harassed and helpless. Jesus says here, I have not come to kill or destroy I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Life to the full here is not just passing the time along 
or simply existing or hoping to get by. It is the best of life. John uses a word here that means literally beyond your wildest dreams. It is extraordinary, something phenomenal. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and a life that is beyond their wildest dreams. Jesus is the agent of wholeness, of eternal life, of secure pasture. Jesus has the right credentials and he is the only safe bet because he offers true life and not some substitute or selfish shadow of that. Thirdly, Jesus is the real deal. And in this section, and this, this is the last one, we're nearly done. Jesus is saying here, you will never get hurt when you trust in him. In verse 11, here's where we get to the Easter bit. It was coming. Jesus concludes by saying, I am the good shepherd. That's the contrast he's making. All these other shepherds are pretenders I am the ultimate the real the great and the good shepherd and how does Jesus demonstrate that he says I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep Jesus' own perception of his life and work in this world is right here the reason he gives the evidence he offers to demonstrate that he is trustworthy is that he lays down his life for the sheep. The king who died can be trusted. Here is the proof that he's not in it for himself. Here's the proof that he has the best interest of the sheep at heart. It, it, Jesus actually says... Um, he, he talks about um, verse 12 the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep so when he sees the wolf come in he abandons the sheep and runs away then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it the man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep in other words he's a coward when trouble comes I'm just here to get paid as long as it's easy. As soon as it gets hard, I'm off. Don't get paid enough for this. That isn't the attitude of the shepherd. He's not a coward. The reason he's the good shepherd, contrast with all these other bad shepherds, is that he lays down his life for the sheep. I think Jesus either says or alludes here to three things about his own death. Number one, the king's death was not an accident. Look, look at verse 18. If you're on the page here, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again this command I receive from my father 
This is what I was saying at the beginning. The death of Jesus was a mission that Jesus took on by choice. The truth is, if he is who he claimed to be, Romans, Jesus could have just gone and blown them all to smithereens, couldn't he? The creator in human flesh stretching out his hands and allowing soldiers to nail him to a wooden gibbet. Jesus' point here is that the sacrificial death of the shepherd must not be taken as an accident of fate or merely as a tragedy perpetrated by misguided men but as the father's plan. Secondly, the king's death was not just an example. What do I mean by that? I've told this story before but imagine this. It, it, if, if, if Jesus' death on the cross was just an example of how much he loved us, it would be grotesque. Imagine a man out walking with his wife. He wants to prove his love to her. And as they walk along the side of the river, the husband dives in. And as he sinks under the current, he cries out, I love you, darling. It would be suicidal and stupid. And bring no pleasure whatsoever to the poor wife who would be traumatised forever by her husband's protestations of love. But imagine she falls in and he jumps in to save her and as he pushes his wife to the bank and to safety he's swept away by the current. That's a different story, isn't it? The man now is the hero who laid down his life to save his poor wife. Have you ever thought about this? Listen, the reason Christ died is because we need someone to save us from our sins. It wasn't a joke or an accident or an example. Jesus was actually, he came into the world to achieve something In the Bible, in the Old Testament, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. When Jesus died, he died as our substitute. He took our place. He climbed into our shoes. The condemnation that we deserve fell on him. He was innocent, but laid his life down for the guilty so that they could go free. The king who died can be trusted, but actually you and I must trust him because outside of him is only condemnation. Jesus is the good shepherd because he laid down his life the sheep. Thirdly, and this is my last point, I promise. The king's death was an, should that be an, an, an heroic, I can never remember with vowel, words of human hate. The king's death was an heroic fight for intimacy. Verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep 
know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is what his dying breath was for. The king dies to reconcile us to himself. The king who died can be trusted. Whenever someone says to you, trust me, just trust me. Immediately you don't want to trust them when they say that, don't you? When someone says trust me, you have to work out whether they can be trusted. When our culture says trust no one or trust yourself, you've got to weigh that up. The response of the people here is very striking. Many of them said, he is demon possessed and raving mad. The reaction of the crowds was to say, the man's an idiot. what's going on the reaction the reaction of the crowd was to say the man's an idiot what is your response the call of Jesus here rings down the ages of history and it is a call to trust him when I was at school a long 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 time ago We used to sing a hymn in school called There is a Green Hill Far Away. Do you know it? Some of you might be too young to know it. Don't sing hymns in school now, do you? Let me just close by reading a very simple song. There is a green hill far away outside a city wall where our dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin he only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in the king who died can be trusted will you trust the king who died to save you